This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. And I'm Scott. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Jim. I'm Alec. We're going to talk about The Mist by Stephen King. This is first published in uh, an anthology called Dark Forces in 1980, uh, usually collected today in Skeleton Crew. Um, it has been released individually. It was adapted into a audio drama in 1984. Um, the adapter there was credited as M. Fulton, um, but if you followed that crew of... Uh, audio dramatists, you would know that M stood for Meatball, <laughs> Meatball <laughs> Fulton, and that Meatball Fulton was actually just a pseudonym for the guy who did all the editing and ran the show. Um, and then uh, 2007 movie adaptation, which is uh, interesting, and then there is a terrible TV adaptation that I didn't even bother revisiting. Um, probably there's some other stuff, too. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a German audio drama. Um who doesn't like Stephen King? Come on now. <laughs> right? I mean, that's why we have so many people on this show. Am I am I crazy? You're not I crazy. love him. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. not crazy. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, I think he's America's greatest popular novelist. Yeah. Why is that? Because I'm reading this, and I like it. But I also got to the ending, and I realized, oh, yeah, this – didn't Evan, you say something on Twitter about how uh, people don't like Stephen well, King's endings? No, I, I – yeah, kind of a – a cliche that his endings are bad. I think his endings are usually pretty great. This isn't a great ending. Um, I think he just kind of, because of his narration tool, he kind of wrote himself into a corner maybe here, but I think his endings tend to be pretty awesome. They're, they're eucatastrophes, really. Especially starting from The Stand, or The Shining, really, is the first true catastrophic ending, and I think he does those very, very well. You know, when you so there's some mixture there, but I, I think they're usually pretty great. So I don't, I just reject that argument that his endings are bad. Well, I, I think I, I understand oh, why people would say the Darabont ending is better than the book ending, I guess. And yeah, that's the movie, 2007 movie. Yeah. Um, Alec, um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with, with King. I assume you are very familiar with him. I'm, most people are. I, I'm one of those people who read basically everything that he published up to the point I turned 14. Um, <laughs> there, there was about a two-year period where I read everything that um, had been published between Carrie and, I want to say, Needful Things. I may have missed a few here and there, um, but I know his, like I guess, like the first half of his career extremely well and a little bit spottier on the last 20 years. Well, he's I'm saying. Yeah. Right? Oh, Alec, my, my experience is quite similar, actually. I around the same age, maybe a little bit later, I read yeah. everything up to the point. I think it was like Insomnia or so where I stopped yeah. reading. I think that's yeah, when yeah. he started changing his style. I love that book. It really fit me at the time. But later on, like I guess seven, eight years ago, I started rereading them all again. And I've done it like two or three times since then. Wow, that's nice. crazy. Well, I think I, Stephen King... I like love me, all of it now. I, I appreciate uh, what he was doing in the 90s more now. Yeah. I mean, I my, my, my idea about Stephen King is that, you know, the best time to read him is when you're... It's just like a little bit too young to be appropriate. Um, yes. You know, in my case... I totally agree. Maybe 12. You know, I think Stephen King initiated a lot of readers into adult literature, uh, you know, in this weird way. He's like the ultimate young adult novelist 
Uh, and just because, adults as well. Like I remember yeah. my experience with Stephen King is like my eyes being open to like this is how adults think this is what they do and it felt so real and it the like, scales were lifted from your eyes yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it, exp- expanding even further i think stephen king is a good author for people who've only read strictly mimetic fiction to try something quasi-fantastic or horror or fantasy I, I, he's a he's a good bridge novelist for people like i haven't read any of that Tolkien fantasy stuff. What should I try? Stephen King is a really good author to hand somebody to get them to go into the waters of genre. <laughs> yeah, no, if you look at Stephen King, who emerged in like the mid 70s, late 70s, you know, those early novels really come out of this interesting mainstream realistic tradition. You know, they, they, they kind of like form this weird continuity with like some of the big you know, best-selling, um, you know, like non-genre novels from that time, you know, the way they build up character and, and background and, you know, even like the writing style, you know, it's like this very interesting, um, almost like a bridge between uh, mainstream fiction and, and genre fiction. Mm-hmm. I know, Mr. Jim Moon, you, you have a huge bookshelf full of this stuff, so I knew I should invite you on. <laughs> um, it, did you have a similar experience? You started age 12 and Went crazy. Yeah, pretty much around then. It was when um, my introduction was King. I'd seen the book cover of um, Carrie because that was like you know you know everywhere in the horror section, mm-hmm. and unlike a lot of books, the sort of bookshelves that come and go, Carrie stuck around with this you know very iconic uh, New English Library paperback. Um, and kind of my auntie had gone to see Carrie the mo- the movie. And then there was The Shining, and do you remember hearing the adverts uh, and seeing trailers for it and thinking, what the hell is that about? Mm-hmm. What is The Shining? But it, for me, it was... Um, Please tell TV's, me the answer to that, by the way. Uh, the Psychic Power. <laughs> oh, okay. The Shining. Good. Good to know. She's named for it, yeah. But no, it was um, Salem's Lot. When that came on TV, the uh, two-part Toby Hooper mm-hmm. TV adaptation, mm-hmm. it was kind of... I caught the second half because Salem's all that doesn't sound very interesting. Then next day, did you see a thing? It's about vampires. What? I missed it. (laughs) So I watched the second half, but then I wanted to know how the story had started. And so I, you know, actually uh, tried pestered my dad to buy me the paperback and uh, he wouldn't. So I just, I uh, saved up my pocket money and bought it myself. And, um, and then as I went back and read Carrie and uh, the shining and found the, uh, a few other books out as well, and and then it was kind of Christmas and birthdays. I get the new king in hardback, <laughs> and now they are well, <laughs> slowly taking over my house. <laughs> but I mean, I, I kind of I I kind of stopped reading him um, for a good while, and it, but it's like a lot of authors, you, you know, for a while I'll follow them and I'll read the new book when it comes out. Then after a while, it's kind of because you get too many authors on your roster all got books coming out because generally book releases often at the same time of year, you late summer for the Christmas market. And you get a bit of a log jam. So with King, kind of like a lot of authors I still read, it's kind of now I kind of will have a binge where I'll mm. read the the previous like five I've not read in, in wow. like, you know, in a glut and it's kind of uh and that's kinda of how I do it now. I mean I think for me I think one of the great things King did for reading is you got a lot of people wouldn't read reading, mm-hmm. but most importantly, he got a lot of people over their fear of big books. Mm-hmm. And that, that's when I talk to people who don't read, you know, you, you, you know, if you 
you show them a big thick book and go, God, I could never read that. And it's like, you know, like you ask them to cross across the Sahara or something. Mm. And I've even seen people got like degrees, you know, oh God, I couldn't read a 500 page novel. And it's like, yeah, get over yourself. Go on, it's easy reading. I'm not going to bite. But I think, you know, he's, from my experience, I've had a very different view of kind of why he's successful in recent years because I've started rereading um I generally now get his books on Kindle because I'm short on self, self space and I can take it with me. But why notice reading on Kindle? And this goes for other really popular authors as well. Uh, Terry Pratchett, for example, um, on Kindle, I have a thing like it shows you where people highlight passages. Mm-hmm. And for my reading of, of various authors, the biggest authors are the ones who put in lots of little observations, which people highlight because they go, yep, that's so true. Mm-hmm. It can be something profound. It can be something funny. Uh, but those little sort of observations where people go, yeah, right on. That's that speaks to me. And they highlight it. And he, all the, the biggest selling author, J.K. Rowling, Terry Pratchett, Stephen King. If you look on Kindle and turn the highlighting on their books, there's a couple like every page almost. Mm. Of little, these they call that a heat map, I think. Yeah, where people go, yeah, yeah, that, that speaks to me. And then that's what I think separates King from Eugene Kuntz's and James Herbert's and lots of other you know, very good novelists. But I think it's all the extra stuff that people, everyone says, should be cut out of his books to make them shorter because I'm scared of big books, is mm. actually what gives them the magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think I'm I'm I, I, wait I didn't talk to Scott yet. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure Scott, we've talked over the years about how you you're, you're just a huge Stephen King fan, right? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and so like, I, like I, Evan said, I, I read everything up to a certain point. Um, that was just very well put. Um, and I was thinking as everyone was talking, um, he was always tied up in audio with me too because his audio books were superior. Because mm, he was so yeah. popular, the the readers were always terrific. So at some point, I stopped reading him, and I, I exclusively listened to audiobooks um, of his, you know, when they came out. But, yeah, when I was really young, I was probably, I don't know, between 12 and 14. That's when I remember finding Salem's Lot in a used bookstore and reading it. And uh, it was before the that movie came out, which is you know, an event that I remember really well the because TV, it was the scary TV, movie, right? the TV movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think that might be the, the uh, not an expert on Stephen King here, but I think that might be the most popular um, adaptation uh, well, among geez, fans. It a, anyway, it was the scariest thing I had ever seen on TV at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I remember the stand, you know, at that time, I think it was about an 800 page book, not a, 1200 page book or whatever it is now um but yeah yeah and ever since then you know i've always been interested in him and i i would say in the last i don't know maybe 10 or 12 years i've read maybe a third of what he's put out you know? uh, uh, paul you yeah about the audio though like when i've come back and read everything except for the newest stuff i've it's been exclusively audio yeah we had here they're so good frank Mueller. Yeah. And he's done so many. I mean, oh, he did yeah. the different seasons. And if you listen to the different seasons, it's four novellas. Like, Frank Mueller's, like, approach to each one is distinct. And it's yeah. really... He was, he's one of my striking. favorite narrators ever. Yeah. And, like, his approach to the Dark Tower, because, you know, he was... He had, to, you know, he had an accident and he had to retire before, he, you know, before the Dark Tower was done. But mm-hmm. there's just such a striking difference. 
uh, you know, in the approach to those characters. And I, I didn't know this Frank Mueller version of The Mist existed. So thanks, Jesse, for you're very welcome. It. The version I had not, was not good. Um, um, I, I didn't like the cover, but uh, it actually makes sense. I, I don't know if I sent that to you guys. It was sort of a generic uh, public domain cover for the recorded books, uh, standalone audiobook of this. But uh, I believe the artist is actually mentioned. Um, it's a Hieronymus Bosch cover. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. And so it makes sense that <laughs> it wouldn't be picked out. And obviously... Uh, I was gonna. I was. I'm pretty sure, Paul. We've talked about this, and your Stephen King isn't as exactly like everybody else's here's. I think, right? Your Stephen King experience. Uh, well, my, my first Stephen King experience of all things was in Omni Magazine in 1980, because they excerpted Firestarter in, right. and that that's where I started reading Stephen King. Was from there then. Then came then came the movies in the stand and every so often I've like dived into a novel now and again it's kind of like Stephen King's kind of like that lake that lake I occasionally drive up to and dive in and explore around and then come back so I'm not as completely as deep into King as some of the rest of you but every so mm. often, every, every so often the, I get into the car and drive up to the lake because it's always there waiting for me. I mean, and there's something in that lake, right? There's always something in that lake. I mean, when, when, when we did The Running Man, that was the first King I had t- touched in a couple of years. So it's that, That's the first one I have ever I ever did. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, I may have come across some short stories, like some really short stories in between, but I'm not a Stephen King guy. I've I read way more Dean Koontz than I've read Stephen King, and I haven't read that many Dean Koontz. And I think it was because he was just so popular, and I oh, kind of don't I, I, like yeah, popular. yeah, I, um, I, yeah. But I mean, the first thing the, I came across, I think, was Cujo, but the movie. And I'm like, well, this oh. is a horror movie. <laughs> this well, is a scary horror well, movie. Yeah, yeah, my yeah, dog turning against me. Um, but uh, you know, having read The Running Man, which I think is very, very good, um, and and quite quite interesting. And this, I, I, and, you know, seeing all, I've seen many adaptations. I think I understand why most people dig King. And I, I'm also worried, like, that my thesis is right. Basically, like, well, in this, uh, I was thinking I in the mist, I was thinking about all the things that okay. inspired it. No worries. Right. I, it's, it's so well told. King is such a, good storyteller those that heat map of fun and yes this is true and wise or wry observations of human behavior um is so interesting but i i kept thinking like well stephen king is telling us a lot of the times who he's he's drawing this from i mean the ending he said at the ending he says uh, my dad doesn't he'd call this a hitchcock ending right <laughs> let you decide what actually <clears throat> happened um, but, uh, it turns out that this whole audiobook, this whole experience was a found document, right? Which is another kind of, uh, storytelling device. Uh, I think best exemplified by William Hope Hodgson's House on the Borderlands, you know? Um, so the framing device is only at the end, but, uh, that's cool. And then, uh, the ending being that we don't know what happened, um, 
on the other hand, we have this document, so I guess we know something happened because we found it, right? Yeah, kind of a trick out of the spot. Yeah. But he is constantly referencing. I think Lovecraft gets a shout out. A Lovecraftian monsters gets a shout yeah, out. There's so many things mm-hmm. get like meta meta mentioned. They don't. I don't think ever say it's aliens. I mean, aliens get mentioned, but they don't think these creatures are aliens exactly. Um, and then uh, it turns out I'm, I was thinking a lot about why Stranger Things is so popular or was so popular. I don't know if it still is. And I'm like, yeah, okay. All they did is said all those things that people are highlighting in Stephen King's books. We're going to put those in and do exactly the same recipe. And I think King is doing it much more instinctually than they are doing it deliberately. And I think that's why I like Stephen King more. Uh, I don't really like Stranger Things at all, even though I understand why it's appealing. But basically, they're just saying, okay, all this stuff that he did, we're going to do that, too. Um, And then we amp up the drama here and there. But me, I'm thinking, like, oh, it turns out this kid is only five years old, and he's given him, what, on that day, three sips of his beer? And then he's drinking beer all the whole day. He takes one for the road, and then what happens? He takes some more beer, and I'm like, okay, this is out of alcoholism. That's one of the things. He's cheating on his wife. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's, uh, he, he uh, in the Darabont version, he, he shoots his family, which I think is a very uh, – uh, and his new girlfriend and everybody else. No, and no, then, but, but in the Darabont version, it's not, there's, there's no indication that he has the affair that he has in the novella. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's, I, I mean, I mean, uh, it's, no, it's, it's transferred, right? Because it, that's the thing to, for, yeah, to, to the young woman and the soldier. So that's where that, right. And I, and I like that better because, because the whole, because the whole, it makes the main character, not an asshole. Yeah. Yes. It, it makes the main character less of an asshole. And I felt more comfortable. From his point of view in a film, the way we can see it in a book. So it's okay that he cheats on his wife, that he has lust for someone else other than his wife. Right. But also the character in the film is remarkably better off than the character in the, in the yeah. novella. The character in the novella is kind of hard scrabble. He's, his family has seen better times. It's made clear that they're kind of like, uh, Hanging on by the fingernails, whereas in the where whereas in the movie he's doing great. He's doing movie posters. Did you notice? Look, one of the movie posters <laughs> is the Dark Tower, and the other one is the thing. Yeah. Did you catch that? Yeah. yeah. So it's so like yes. So he's clearly much. He's he. I guess they made him a more successful artist in the movie because to be a more appealing protagonist, rather than what we get in the but film. I, I want to. I don't. I don't know how much more I successful want to it is. About the, the sexual politics of this a little bit, though. I, I think I've read a lot of King lately. You know, the last five, six, seven years, he is really, really moralistic about monogamy, and he has been throughout his career. Um, it's like almost an obsession of his. I think, like if you like the stand, so much of that book is like about relationships and who's with who, and like even in that situation you know where everyone's dead you know it's still like the centerpiece of so much of the drama of the story is is monogamy right and his characters tend to obsess about that a lot even though he's got a lot of adulterers and a lot of cheaters in his stories it's it's he's quite moralistic about it i think and so i was actually struck by how matter of fact it was presented in this book when i reread it 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that, in the movie, basically, mm-hmm. the wife is completely wiped out of the equation right away. And he is, she also is in the in the book. In the audio drama, it's it's the same way. Um, Which way is it at, in the audio drama? It's the same way. Oh. She is in his thoughts a little bit. <laughs> oh, okay. Right, but and no, it's it's the mom that's missed more than the wife. But he's got the the child has a bunch of replacement moms and a replacement wife, and uh, and the the father has a replacement uh, wife. That is right, and and I like that that. Uh, Stephen King does give this this setup for the four bullets, right? I'll deal with that later. Um, and then we're left to decide. And what I noticed in the adaptation, I think it's really interesting. Um, I always like to look at the adaptations because it allows me to see the book in relief um, and see what the book did well and the and uh, other things got better. Um, and so. One of the things, the, I think, didn't you say, Evan, you were watching The Green Mile? You said, Darabont's a hack. I was joking. Were you? I was, okay. I was, it's hard I was to tell watching, on Twitter. I watched all the Darabont Stephen King. Well, there's a three, right? Uh-huh. The Stephen King that Darabont did. I watched them in order. And I just noticed the the, the weird tales in yeah, The Green Mile. Green As Mile. a cameo. Uh, mm-hmm. Dell. It, it, weird tales gets a shout out in this in this novella too yeah right. and Go why on. i said he's a hack is i was just joking because i was looking because that's set in 35 so i was looked at all the weird tales covers from 35 34 i was trying to date that and then you found it and it was 37 so it's, uh, that's uh i was just i was just kind of joking about it I, okay. actually darabon's oh yeah well uh, <laughs> i i i don't but, remember the, know, I know was, the uh, green mile was okay that's I, if i, I yeah, I should I put an entry in Wikipedia. This is an error in the film. <laughs> I wanna I wanna point out though that um, what I think is so interesting about that 2007 adaptation is it's it's so faithful to the book in dialogue. Like he basically mm-hmm. tries not to change the dialogue at all. And when there are other characters like the extra soldier. And that stuff, those scenes work a little less well. So I, I was thinking it's possible that, like, I, I like, I remember liking the 2007 the first time I saw it, I guess probably in 2007 or 2008, whenever it came out. And I I, I was thinking, oh, it's got a great ending and um, this is interesting. But so many of the exact lines, like, it's basically he doesn't change a thing. Right. Um, I was surprised to learn that the neighbor was black, um, which I don't think is mentioned in the book, but doesn't really make a difference. Right. Um, I, I guess I was surprised. I could have yeah. been surprised to learn that the main character was white, but it's Maine. So I didn't expect, you know, that much. Well, uh, Red is in the book. He's clearly white. I mean, he really is Irish. It's not a. Uh, yeah. It's not a okay. So, yeah, so yeah, it doesn't that those little things are not so important, but to the ending being changed uh, in the sense that it it has an uh, a definitive ending and a I think a great hard boiled noir st- st- it's a noir ending um, makes it all the better. In fact, it makes it much more uh, concretely solid as a story because. As it is, I feel like this is actually why we have all these movies now, like A Quiet Place, 
right? You guys all seen this movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 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 basically the mist, except instead of uh, they sniff you, they can hear you, so you have to be quiet. And it's a fine film in that it's ripping off the mist and a bunch of others. It's like you know all these zombie stories. In fact, the other thing that's really striking about that 2007 film. Uh, you know, other than the faithfulness to the dialogue, is that there's three actors, at least three actors from The Walking Dead, and they're all playing essentially their same roles. <laughs> the lady with the really <laughs> short hair, and then there's the the love interest, and uh, there's the old guy who comes in with his nose bleeding, and they're all playing a you know, it, so. The thing is, is The Walking Dead is a distillation of so much. And that's how I feel like The Mist is. Like, to me, The Mist is a ground level. I was telling this to uh, someone on Twitter by direct message last night. It's a ground level version of The Nightwire. You guys all know this story? Yeah. Oh, the, yeah, um, yes, yeah. The Mist comes up the small town and the yes. radio telegraph um, operator yeah. picks yeah. it up. Yeah. Mm, mm. And the, what we get in the Nightwire is we get it from the top down. This is a story by H.F. Arnold. It was voted the most popular story in Weird Tales, like, ever. And that was, like, I think near the end of Weird Tales. Um, and H.F. Arnold, we don't even know what his names, his first two letters of his name stand for. He has, like, one other story, maybe two other stories. And they're not, you know, held up like this. But this one works on a level of it's whether the story actually happened or not. Um, it actually happened in the sense that somebody's dead. And uh, the way I read that story is that it's actually an internal monologue. This guy is typing out the events of this, this town that turns out to not be on any map or the city that turns out to be not on any map and reporting what it's like to die. Basically, um, but you can also read it as just a, the terrible events happening to a town or a city. Um, so if we sort of translate that to a ground level view of this, our viewpoint character, like all of his foibles to me and the foibles of all the people in that, uh, uh, grocery store. And I love, I love the, uh, the name. I don't know if it's mentioned in the book, but in the movie, it's called food house. Did you guys notice that? Yeah. The name of the mm. restaurant? Okay. Nope. It's a food house for who? <laughs> the local people, but also it's where all the food is stored for the alien creatures that are crawling in. Right? <laughs> I really I thought that was very choice <laughs> decision. Um, the, uh, the viewpoint from all these people inside this store is that this is all happening out there. Um, but actually all the drama, I mean, the emotional drama comes not just from the horror of seeing these terrible things happen. And I think it's actually slightly distracting. Um, like these monsters are really scary, especially in the movie. Um, but in the, in the book, it's a, I think a little, uh, this is why Stephen King translates so well to film in the book. It's more cerebral, I think. Um, so when you see the spider crawling, it's it's a danger, and Stephen King does it well. But when you see it crawling in on the film, and it has a skull face, and then all those spiders coming out of that guy's body, it's really 
it's it amps up your oohs, which is good. I mean, I guess that's the point. But to me, the real horror is like the people in there and how they don't trust each other. And there's this lady who wants to sacrifice. Yeah, ma- yeah, ma- yeah, ma- ma- Mrs. Car- yeah, Mrs. Carmody is far scarier than any of the monsters outside that store. And the kind of the film, the film puts the accelerant on that because I mean it, the story she's bad enough in the film she's absolutely terrifying. As, as I a found science. the opposite. No, I thought that yeah, I no. thought the opposite. I thought in the story she was scary, but in the film it was almost comical how weird it yeah. was and how stupid the people were for listening to her and. It didn't really feel terrifying at all to me in the film. You know, I I agree with Marissa there. I I thought she was different from between. That's a big difference between the the text and the movie is her. Because in the text, she was like this amalgam of like Christianity and folk stuff. And and she seemed to be psychic for real. (laughs) You know, there seemed to be something there that was mystical about her. They were all psychic, right? Yeah, I mean, but then in the in the movie, psychic. she was just crazy. I mean, she was a crazy person that I never felt there was any kind of a mist. Is that what you felt, Marissa? Would yeah, and it was frustrating to me how everyone just stood and let her talk, and no one was ever like, nah. The, the, you know, like the, the, shut up. <laughs> there was the one bit where the, where the thing lands on her and it doesn't sting her, and she takes that. It's clearly the movie's trying to make that as proof that yes, she is chosen by God and for her. That was quite good. I like that crazy fundamentalism. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I gather you're in Scott's point about her not being much more caricature than in the book. It's true. She's much, but but maybe she's kind of insidious in the book, and then in the movie, she's just sort of like out there where you'd think she'd just get shut down so quickly. But but then again, maybe maybe because of recent events, looks around. People who are that crazy apparently are being listened to, so maybe that's why I felt more resonance this time with yeah. her as a character in the movie mm. because people are that stupid here and now. Well, well that's a lot the of these thing. things you're talking about are really strong. Yeah, go ahead. No, well, that's, they're just that, strong king tropes, that, right? The, first yeah. of all, like the, the psych, like people being psychic. Of course, we have plenty of psychic characters, but there's a lot of I think there's a lot of like unnamed or unacknowledged psychics in King's novels. Like I even did a video on this mm. about yes, a year did. ago. I saw that. Or a couple of years ago about the dead zone, where I think the the villain of that story, Greg Stilton, is a, is a, is a precog too, not just uh, the hero, John Smith. So you can go watch that if you're if you're interested. But uh, but also these nobodies who kind of rise to political power, given a certain context, mm. under the dome, the stand mm. has that. It comes up so often. I think yeah. he has some kind of fear of of like like political zealots, I guess. Or yeah, just, well, kind of cult leaders. So much yeah, let's, let's. I mean, maybe this is like too obvious a, a point to make, but can we talk about how the mist is really a great COVID story um, and some yeah. like a, better, mm-hmm. a better one yeah. than the stand? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. when you talk about this scenario where you know you can't go outside. Um, it's clear that there's stuff outside that's going to kill you, and there are people who are clamoring, "Let us out! We're just going to, yeah. we're, we're going. Mm. You know, this is our choice. We're, we're free to go." Um, it, and it is totally irrational. Um, and you read that now, and you're like, "Yeah, I, I can understand. I can understand right. why there would be a subset of these uh, people who would say, no, 'No, we're leaving. We're, we're going outside.'" Mm-hmm. 
I want to talk about another story that, that is in from Weird Tales that we actually covered on this podcast relatively recently um, that I thought of. Um, and, you know, one thing we do know about King is that he read this stuff, right? He mm-hmm. he grew up reading Lovecraft and uh, The Nightwire and all this stuff. So, he, I mean, I couldn't find any documentary evidence uh, saying, you know, I am inspired by this, you know. But there there's a Sonia Green story that we did not that long ago called The Horror at Mar- Martin's Beach. Uh, Sonia Green and H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, Marissa, you were on that. Mm-hmm. Um and there's a scene kind of like that in here. Um, he, our main character says, uh, here, take this uh, clothesline. Um, and if you get out to 300 meters or whatever, 300 feet, uh, we will know that. Um, and they go out there and then the, the line starts pulling on it, right? And then when they pull it back in, it's, it's uh, uh, covered in blood. Now, the thing is, is that's not identical to what happens in in the horror in Martin's speech. But what is identical is us viewing the people who are participating, right? The What's really interesting about the dynamics of this, this grocery store full of people is it's not about upper class and lower class. It's actually about uh, out-of-towners, right, and locals. And... So when dynamics happen, like the the retired teacher says, weren't you uh, in my class and your sister? How come you're not out there helping, right? Um, it's it's about, you know, what can the locals do versus what can the uh, out-of-towners be expected to do? And where even started, this boundary dispute starts off the story, right? The neighbor whose tree fell in his yard and they previously had a a dispute and that's, you know, you are lording it over me because you're a local, all this sort of like, that's kind of weird. Um, I think really what's, what's so cool about reading Stephen King is his psychology is all over the page in the same way that Lovecraft's is Mm -hmm. and the same way that Philip K. Dick's is. He, He's writing very instinctually, probably even more instinctually, I think, than than Lovecraft's, you know, I had this weird dream and now I'm going to craft it into a story using my magic spell words, right? Which he does. But in this case, it's like um, I drink too much. I drink so much. I I let my son have three. I think it was three times. Maybe it was only twice, but it felt like three times. He let his five year old son have sips of his beer. And then he says, one for the road, right, as he drives off, leaving his wife behind. And then what do they do after the first encounter? Drink more beer, right? Now, the thing is, I think, you know, beer is probably a good thing to drink a little bit, even though I don't drink much of it myself. In fact, I almost drink none. I think it's probably a good thing a lot of people have some beer. But some people know they have drinking problems. And one of them was a guy named Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he, you know, it's funny. So he tends King, to be kind of moralistic about. Uh, it, well, so, so you know, um, at the end of uh, Skeleton Crew, he has a a note talking about how the story was written, and mm-hmm. you know, the basically the first two chapters are based on a real storm that he witnessed with his family, and everything up until the trip to the grocery store is essentially him recalling, you know, a real event from his life. Um, so it, it could well be that he was drinking and, you know, like that's, that rings true to me. Yeah. Um, 
what I love is that, you know, he does this thing that a lot of sort of mainstream novelists would do is taking this uh, event from your own life and, you know, recreating it on the page in like a very methodical way. I mean, the first two chapters of The Mist are very realistic, very detailed, mm-hmm. circumstantial, you know. Um, I think it's the best speak. chapters. I actually love those, those that, the opening. They're beautifully mm-hmm. written. You know, they're full of great details and, and like little observant touches. Um, and then you can sort of envision a story that was just about like David and Norton going to the store and like yeah. these, like the, the class tensions between them or like the, the different, you know, issues they're having as neighbors and having that unfold in like this like very realistic sort of like, um, you know, like a John Updike kind of story, yeah. you know, just about these two guys. But, you know, because Stephen King also read Weird Tales uh, and Lovecraft, it, it kind of like goes off into this other direction. But it, it's built on this interesting fusion, like a hybrid between, mm-hmm. you know, these, you know, very kind he of like. He's not an occult researcher, right? <laughs> he isn't like the son of a duke who's going back to right. retake his family's home. Right. He's just a dude. And I I like that he's actually a painter, which as opposed to a writer, although there's a lot of writing stuff in here as well. um, He's a painter. And what does he do? He paints this picture for us of what the clouds look like of. And I was I was like, they are so faithful in that wherever they're faithful in that 2007. um, They're so faithful, like the name of the car is the same kind of car. He says it's a scout getting the scout. And he always calls his kid Champ, right? It's exactly the same. In the movie, they didn't have an International Harvester Scout. They had a, a Toyota Land Cruiser. But, you know, it doesn't matter because he's trying to be faithful to the text, right? And that's why I think it works so well, is that he's actually speaking to a very specific region and uh, mental state and relationships. All he, he, It's like perfectly balanced because it's it's literally true. I get a picture of what Maine is like. And then we have this explanation for why, or pseudo explanation for why all this stuff is happening, right? And this is where the, you know, the TV adaptation goes off the rails. And even the expanded with the MP and stuff, you know, the we actually get a doubt in the movie we actually get a an explanation and that's why that stranger things has the secret military base and we get all that stuff going on that doesn't really matter what really matters is we need this scenario where all these people are like you say in a very covety situation lined up for toilet paper right um worried about who's gonna you know run off with the toilet paper and who's not wearing a mask and you're a problem for our society and you need to follow the rules. And to me, the way I was thinking about this, how all of this works is what was the right thing for me to do in that situation? I don't want to be with Mrs. Carmody. I don't want to be there. <laughs> but I also don't think going to the drugstore is a good idea. And those guys who go into the back and want to play with the, uh, uh, you know, the door, um, they're wrong. Right. So what was the best thing anybody could have done in this scenario, especially if we know that the army is coming uh, as we do eventually in the film? Right. Well, and the best thing to do is drink beer. Absolutely nothing. Just sit there, drink beer, play pinochle and wait. And it's if we look at this as not basically, but if we look at this not as only, you know, a product of Weird Tales in Maine and and Stephen King's life, I was like, 
what is the army doing? It's almost like it's almost like this is a metaphor for Vietnam. You know, like we've got people going out and we don't have good information as to what's going on. I mean, this is the situation with, you know, military wars now, right? They actually, you know, don't show the bodies at all. Um, But, you know, the fact that you could send out a letter to your kid in Vietnam and then you get these experiences as they come back and tell you how terrible it is, right? I don't think Stephen King is, he says, I'm going to write a Vietnam book. I don't think that's what he's doing, but I think he's experiencing the atmosphere of 1980. Like, what is the military doing there? Oh, well, ultimately, they're fighting the Soviets, right? And it's like this sort of oppressive, scary atmosphere, but it's translated into a Stephen King story. I think that's why it's like people are getting at the highlighters and heat mapping everything is because he's actually speaking to a particular set of events in and the impact of those events on people who are not actually responsible for them directly if you see what i mean like none of the people in this small main town caused the vietnam war none of the people in this small main town um are responsible for what the army does or doesn't do up at that base and yet it's their government I kind of agree with you, but I also think because so much of my Stephen King experience, and I think a lot of people, is when they're young, like when I was reading this story the first time, I didn't know anything about any of these politics. So there's something, and I still remember so many lines, like when I was rereading this, it was such a nostalgia hit to my childhood of remembering all these like little moments and observations that jumped out. So there's more there's much more to it than just the politics and like the meta this is the background is what I'm thinking. Like, yeah. like I don't, I, I think he's, he's, he's always writes about where, where he knows, right. He doesn't set stories, yeah. you know, in Vladivostok because he doesn't know Vladivostok, but he knows these people. He knows his neighbors and, and he knows the feelings that are like, he's sort of taking a temperature map of what's going on. So mm-hmm. Alec, you're, you're saying, you know, this is a very COVID story. I think Evan, you were saying uh, uh, Stephen King has bad political takes on Twitter, right? Uh, this is the same thing I well, I, I see as uh, William right? Gibson. So the Vietnam War and, and takes, Kennedy. Right? That's the other thing. Like, uh, well, yeah, he is a Kennedy fetish. He's yeah. obsessed with Kennedy. Yeah, and, and he's in, in this way. He is kind of like a. He's just. I don't want to say it's typical because most don't write, but he, he's a boomer. And so the Vietnam War is central to his his consciousness. Um, I, I love like what's eleven twenty two sixty three. I think that's a great book in so many ways. But I, I, I mean, I I have just sort of trouble getting over like the 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 the, the Kennedy love. Well, know? one of my favorite, you know, like Stephen I just facts, I just don't um, get it. I don't get it. But I'm not of that generation. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is interesting because like these books have held up so well that you read them now and you don't really think about the context, you know, in which they mm-hmm. arose. But, um, you know, in Dance uh, Macabre, you know, his, his good book on, uh, on horror fiction, he talks about how uh, The Stand was uh, conceived. And he was originally going to write a story inspired by the Patty Hearst case, yeah. which uh, I think is pretty much faded from, you know, yeah. the, the cultural consciousness in a lot of ways. But obviously it was a huge story back then. And he, he's writing the story. It doesn't work. And then he combines it with this idea about a pandemic, a, a global pandemic. And so a lot of the politics of the stand 
And a lot of sort of the subtext there comes out of this like very specific moment in like the mid 70s. Um, mm-hmm. And I think uh, for the expanded version, he actually transferred it to 1990, which is when that, uh, you know, the, the original uncut uh, edition came out. And to me, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't quite work. I, I think the stand works best as like a late 70s story. And, and you know, the trying to transfer it, you know, 10 years later, you know, it, it's so grounded in that period that it doesn't quite, he doesn't quite pull it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he didn't revise it enough. I think that's the problem. He, was he did a couple of like tiny. There, there's a sections like there, there's a men like the first chapter with flag in, in the stand that actually mentions the single liberation army. So yeah. the petty hurt stuff is in his mind yeah. there and it, it doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work in 1990, whenever. Yeah. And like cranny, you know, like all these characters, like their cultural reference points are all from the, the late seventies in a way that would not be true if you were, yeah. you know, like a young person. And I needed to be more thoroughly incorporated, I think, because I think it was almost like, when I was re- I just actually re- with the COVID thing, I, re- I re- went through the stand, the the uncut version. And I just got the sense that he kind of, if he would have had like Microsoft Word, he just kind of searched Copy for and certain replace. Yeah. Yeah. and yeah. change them and didn't change other things. Yeah. But it's I've never it's interesting as you say that he wrote this directly after the stand, I believe. It was the thing he wrote right after the stand. Yeah, it's a bigger scale. Uh, global thing I, I like that it's so 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 small scale in this story i mean the rise of shows like the walking dead and the many movies that i mean there was bird box is kind of the same thing right where it, there's some sort of out invasion from outside and then we look at a microscopic version of that right these this group of people who usually after the events right rather than as they are happening. Um, and the explanation for why the the mist and the monsters in the mist are the way they are um, is good because it's not explained. Like, it, especially in the, in the book, it, they have this arrowhead, right? They have this arrowhead project, project arrowhead. It's, it's psychically calling out to him and he does a good job about how, you know, somebody at the library mentions it, you overhear it, you pass it on to the next person. Um, this is how, you know, what you hear is going on. And then notice no one's responsible, right? We're all responsible for whatever environmental disasters happening. We're all responsible. Nobody knew. Says somebody famous. <laughs> Nobody could have seen this. No one could have seen it. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But we're all we we're all we were all taken by surprise, um, and because we're looking at it from this very ground level view, um, and and seeing it as it's happening, um, I think that's why. Like, I I don't want to talk too much about the the TV show because I think it's just terrible. But I want to say why it's terrible. And one of the things they did, uh, other than scatter the people in it, instead of focused, you know, a bunch of people stuck in a uh, grocery store, right? That's the whole viewpoint. A bunch of people stuck in a grocery store. Um, they have, there's a group over here, there's a group over here, and then there's people moving around between them, um, which is, I, I think, a mistake. And then... Um, what they did also is they took the 
the horror of the mist, the monsters in the mist, and instead of saying an, an external thing where we are almost subject to a kind of uh, alternative ecosystem where we are not the the prey and we are not the predators, but we are made irrelevant in a certain way, and yet also we are subject to that ecosystem. So, you know, they haven't found their niche yet, but their niche is not the top of the food chain, right? And that's exemplified by the giant elephant leg thing, right? And uh, the flies coming in and the bird things that come in after them, they're irrelevant. Uh, they're the tentacle things, right? So they're subject to the prey in the same way that uh, in a book like of Men and Monsters, you know, humans are made into... The Men in the Walls, yeah. The Men in the Walls, yeah. Um, humans are made into like a mice or cockroaches, right? Living in the oh, walls of, of yeah. aliens, aliens house. And, you know, any dreams we have of, you know, becoming the top, top creature are gone. And all we can do is get revenge by like, you know, eating their food and stuff like that. Like if, if that was going to be the ultimate result, that's a cool idea. And he, King is sort of offering that as a, a possibility. Whereas in the TV show, they say all these, you know, sort of evils that are within the, the characters in the grocery store, they are manifested by the fog, by the, the mist. So you go out there and you have corruption in your heart, then your face becomes corrupt. And I was like, well, that's stupid. What? Right? What I like is that King has them completely separated. Um, and so there's the horribleness of the humans inside the store and some of them inside the narrator, right? And then there's the the indifference of the aliens that are outside. They'll eat us, sure. They want to eat us, but they're not here to eat us. They're not here to scare us. That's just what they are doing. That's how they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really uh, a nice separation. That, there, that is, this isn't a... a Essentially, Mrs. Carmody isn't right, right? So that's a, it's got that cosmic indifference thing that he's taken on board from Lovecraft, and that's why he's drinking so much beer. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> because ultimately, <laughs> uh, and you know, he's got to get his kid used to drinking so much beer too, because ultimately, he knows this it's all for nothing. Mm-hmm. That's that's I think why Stephen King is much better at this than a lot of people who try and you know do his stuff is is somehow instinctually he knows he's taken he's read so many weird tales he understands this on a cellular level and then when he goes to the typewriter he can he can give us that as a reflection of his own psychology psychological experience with it when i i watch cujo the horror of cujo was that that was the family dog and the dog ultimately didn't want to be that way, but that's the way he was. And that's why it's so cool, right? Rather than uh, there's these horrible monsters from evil dimension and they're judging us. No, that's yeah. the family dog. What does the TV series do with the Arrowhead Project? Yeah, they, they I, I didn't watch far enough into it to ultimately get any revelation, but I think they were going down the same path as as uh, Stranger Things did. I got through the first oh. the Stranger Things. So and, yeah. if, if you open up like 
Dark Tower 6 or 7, ones published more recently, and you look at the list of books by King, there are mm. several that are highlighted as, like, relevant for the Dark Tower, right? Mm. And one of them is Skeleton Crew, and it's because of the story, I, I, I assume, right? Mm. So, of course, you haven't read the Dark Tower. How many of I you have not read you, you know, you got these kind of crossing between worlds, and especially in Dark Tower 4, you have this idea of the Thinny, right? Which is like a, mm. a place in which you you move between these worlds, right? And that's kind of in a lot of, of, of King's works, right? But he highlights this, he highlights it, and a, and a few others. And this is a retcon, it seems to me, right? Like, he wants to kind of make this story into that Dark Tower universe, hmm. you know, late in his career. And I don't know, I, for me, that's kind of a bit of a mistake. I don't want this story in the Dark Tower universe. But I do believe in Dark Tower 3, some of these creatures appear... And, and towards the end of that book, like they're kind of going through this region on a train and they see all these monsters. And I think some of them I look very similar to mm. this or describe very similar. So I think it, but my point is that if, you know, I think King wants to do that in that case, that makes the Arrowhead project thesis kind of more compelling because you do have these institutions in the dark tower, like uh, one's called North central positronics that are playing with, these different dimensions and, and all that. So, and and that's a little bit different. Like how institutions appear in his early fiction, the stuff he was writing at this time, like the shop in Firestarter, even in Flag's operation in the stand, it's all incompetent. It's all like doomed to failure. So I like, think that in this story, the storm this, yeah. is the what what caused it, right? They they think lightning yeah. struck the place or whatever. Um. That makes it, uh, I think, actually less interesting than if if they are, they're trying to defeat the Soviets and they're going to, you know, get, I mean, they were doing stupid stuff like this at the time, right? They, they, the men of Yeah, all these mm. famous people who used to be, now they're professors and they <laughs> they have podcasts and they, uh, they talk about how great the column by this guy in the New York Times is, right? And meantime, if you look at their their CV, it says that, you know, they used to work on remote viewing. And I'm like, it's true. You can only <laughs> fail upward, you know. <laughs> I worked on remote viewing for 15 years. Uh, I got paid a lot of money and I became in a, uh, I, I went to doctorate school and I got my doctorate. Now I, I teach kids. And guess what? All of that was stupid. <laughs> but the thing is, is they're spending this money because they're they are worried about something. They're worried about communism taking over, and they think that the Soviets have got all these going things going on. So if you if you think of a project like Project Arrowhead, which might be about this and it might be about that, um, I always think of that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft poem, "The Window." You know, the one I mean, Mr. Jim Moon. I'm from the, from Yugoth. Mm. Yes, mm. Um, which is uh, I again I think. Um, I, I just typed in HP the window and I got a Windows thing. HP <laughs> <laughs> Lovecraft the window. Um, basically, it's about you know opening that door that you shouldn't. Um, it goes like this: the house was old with tangled wings outthrown, of which no one could ever half keep track. And in a small room, somewhat near the back, was an odd window sealed with ancient stone. There, in a dream-plagued childhood, quite alone, I used to go, 
where night reigned vague and black, parting the cobwebs with a curious lack of fear, and with a wonder each time grown. One later day I brought the masons there, to find what view my dim forebears had shunned, but as they pierced the stone a rush of air burst from the alien voids that yawned beyond. They fled, but I peered through and found unrolled all the wild worlds of which my dreams had told. It's, you know, that piercing. Now, notice that the narrator in this story, he doesn't flee. He's compelled to do it. That's kind of cool, right? It's it's like we have this curious monkey thing. We got to, uh, hey, maybe we can use dimensions to uh, see what the Soviets are doing. Spy at the spy on them through or, you know, move, roll our tanks into Moscow behind their lines. They will never know. Um, so they're working on this stuff. And then foolishly, we open the gate that lets them all in. Now, I think that the ending of the 2007 only works well because he's killed his family and his friends. And survived, and we find out that it was he could have just waited a few minutes, right? Um, if 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 you think about like if they're just saved at the end um, by waiting a few minutes, then this whole story made no sense. Mm. I think that's why Stephen King has to have it so that we can't we can't be shown it. And if he had written that Darabont ending, um, he would probably have done the same thing he did with his. A school shooting book and banned this story, you know, because he's thinking about killing his family when he's thinking about killing his family in this story, right? And those are thoughts we can't have. I mean, I, I actually wanted to talk about, you know, so we're talking about like sort of the skeptical view of the of institutions of the military, you know, and, and to me, that's why the ending of the movie version, um, I, I, I kind of have mixed feelings about it because I, I love the sort of the, the nihilistic darkness that, you know, um, Darabont goes for there. But I don't like the idea that the army comes in and fixes things, right? There's this yeah, implication that like purpose. the cavalry has arrived. And it, you know, it, it works as kind of this like sick irony. But I wonder if like the trade-off is too high because it also, to me, undermines a lot of the kind of cynicism and like the more interesting like thematic elements of the first part of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether it was it was worth it. Yeah, I'm still kind of not sure. Yeah, I, I think that, that I think that that uh, that that he killed his family and he didn't kill himself. That is, uh, I mean, that he shot his son after abandoning his wife, right? I think that that's just so so dark, and I'm. Uh, this is why I was like, I don't think he's a hack. I think he did a good job here, and he did a good job because he went there. That almost no films are willing to do that, right? To make yeah. that Chinatown ending, mm-hmm. or it's like, oh my and god, all just, the terror happened. Oh, and I just kind I of made the being mistake. kidding when I said he was a hack. I, I, I think well, I know it now. I know it now. Yeah. Well, to me, I, I about feel the, like uh, tales thing. Uh, but anyways, about the ending, like mm-hmm. I, I stole this from somewhere. I heard it somewhere. But you compare this to Shawshank Redemption. You know, like, there the guy waits like twenty years to get his freedom, right? And like Bear goes through all this crap until he finally gets it. All right, gets his freedom, earns it. This guy that can't wait five minutes, you know? I, yeah. I mean, I wonder if there's like a version of the ending where he kills his family or he kills everyone else except for himself. And then the mist just kind of goes away. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Sure. that you know things have healed themselves somehow without this shot of like this military truck the, rolling the, by. Yeah, the, the guy actually, singing in the in the grocery store. I think those tentacles came out of that beer can, right? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. This story is much better on that psychological level if our narrator is the guy with the problem, right? Well, when you did you notice in the ending, like I've, when they're showing the trucks? The trucks. There's the one woman on the truck. Yeah. That's the woman who like left right away. Yeah, I'm going. I was, I was yeah. just going to say when Alec was saying about the military turning up to save the day, like if it had been instead her and a bunch of other locals who made like better decisions, that yes. might have been a bit more ironic. Yes, that would have been fine. I would have loved that version. Um, yeah. You know, and I think you would have gotten the same impact without this extra level of right. um, that, that I don't really care for. Uh, well, I, I mean. I, uh, politics of it are actually quite interesting, right? What they should have done is wait for the government to come and help. (laughs) Even though the government fucked up in the first place, the best thing to do is to wait in your home and wait for the government to come and help. And I like also that all the civilians are just riding around in backs of these trucks and ATVs and all this stuff. And all the military guys are wearing masks. Right? Mm. Yeah, but why are they wearing those masks? Well, maybe... This this is actually not just mist, but actually it's a gas, and it's causing all these hallucinations, right? And so it's an extra level of oh yeah, okay, maybe we're uh, we're not, and they're noticed they're all faceless government guys too, right? So right, but can, yeah, can you consider when the mist when this movie was made was like two thousand. It came out in two thousand seven, so it was like May two thousand five, two thousand six. We we. Just gotten into Iraq and found out it was a quagmire. So it's almost like this movie is trying to. <laughs> no one could have known, Paul. No, well, that it would be a quagmire. No, but, but I think we knew already then by 2007 it was a quagmire. And, it's, and this movie's kind of like, I mean, having the army triumphantly show up and save the day, even though we have the personal cost to our. The protagonists. work, Paul. Don't worry. Well, 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 yeah, well yes, I, yes, the, the surge works, except for our main <laughs> character is killed. Killed his friends and his and his and his son, but the surge otherwise works. So I think that's I, I think that going, that's kind of, it's a very Hollywood Hollywoodized ending for it. I mean, if the mist was made a few years later, I think we'd get a much darker view of what the of how the military would come in or not at all. But since it was made in that moment, there was still the hope that the military could save the day, even if our person main even character though they can't, screwed up in the first place, even though they screwed up in the mm-hmm. first place and our main character can't take advantage of it. So that's why it has that weird mm-hmm. tonal. What are you saying, Scott? I was just going to say, I'm, I'm seeing that a little differently. It didn't look to me like the military was triumphant there. It looked like they were cleaning up to me and there's no way it was hallucination and stuff, you know, cause they were burning, you know, cocoons off the trees and things. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like the military was following the mist as it receded. I, I didn't get the feeling that it was because of the mitil- the military, the mist was receding. No, it's but they're like saving the people, right? They were, they were running through saving mm-hmm. the people as they could. And, and that's another point, you know, that, that um, I can't remember the actress's name from the walking dead with the short hair, yeah. But she was on that thing, right? Uh-huh. And she left that that grocery store. Mm-hmm. I thought that was uh, pretty powerful too. Yeah, that's <laughs> when, that's when I, the extra bit of the ending that's different, rather than you know yeah, actually use the gun. Absolutely. So when I first saw that movie, it was in the theater, 
And the ending, I was I was not pleased at all. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was there with my son too, and he was oh, he was probably shit. fifteen or so. And uh, we went straight to the bookstore because I said that is not how that thing ended, and I know it isn't, and I didn't have a copy of it at the time. <laughs> but we went straight to the bookstore from the theater so I could find out how the the novella ended. Um, <laughs> and then, but now this time when I saw it. I felt differently about it. Um, so I watched it this week. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I really liked Stephen King's hopeful ending. And one of the things that I noticed as I reread The Mist was the elements for Darabon's ending were in there. Oh, yeah. He, he thought about what he, he might have to do something drastic with the gun. And he also thought about, wouldn't it be weird if the National Guard showed up right now? Right. Uh, I mean, that's that, the psychic part, right? Right. Like, it was all, all it was all right there. Yeah. It's all right there. But it, it's it, like, you know, I, I liked the hopeful ending that Stephen King had there where, you know, they're in a dire situation, but he's still like, you know, I have hope here that it's going to turn out okay. I just don't know how but it's, it's also to. might it also might not be real, right? So he says he finds this radio and he heard, thought he heard the word. In the audio drama, it's the same Hartford, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I was listening, to, and I don't, I don't, I, I mean, maybe I could have listened with headphones on, like it's recommended, you know. But I didn't hear the word Hartford, and and the way that's adapted, right? There's no narrator, there's no viewpoint from, you know, we're, we're not being told it from the viewpoint of our artist dad. We're just being shown the sound. And we follow along like a microphone in the pocket of one of the characters. So we hear yeah, them well, in space. Regardless of, regardless of that, whether that was actually heard or not, his hope was real. Right? <laughs> How it made well, him feel was real. He was too. like, I, I still have hope that this is going to end out okay. So, yeah. yeah. But, but hopefully this ending, don't get in which ending. he eliminated his own hope, right, by killing everybody. And, oh, he's and, saving and, them from the horror. I know, I know what you're saying, but then the ending—it's basically. I guess what I'm trying to say is that this ending is pro hope more than even the book because it's it's something that I'll never forget. And if I'm ever in that situation, <laughs> yeah. I would rather sit here for a minute and not <laughs> take this action. I still did. Hope. I did think he made that decision very quickly. Like I thought yeah. they would at least wait till the very last minute, but he's like, oh, well, I guess we got to do it. Yeah. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah, wait till <laughs> the creatures no, show at up. At least wait until you're so thirsty, you, you feel like you're going to die. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, they were safe for a minute. It was, it was uh, somewhat democratic. That one man nodded his head. I don't think the women yeah. voted. Maybe the one she, she kind of did. She was, did vote. Yeah. That's for sure. They yeah, did. I think. But uh, thing, if, you, if you're going to have an ending like that, uh, a noir ending where the whole point of this exercise was doomed and it's a failure, then you have to sort of set things up that way, right? And it's actually like in some ways not consistent with Stephen King's um, personality as a writer. Because uh, if you look at the books, at least the ones that I've read, he, he very rarely goes for the, the bleak noir ending, at least in the mm, novels. Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of the short stories are different. Actually. The short stories can be like very grim. But, you know, the big exception with the novels is Pet Cemetery, which ends about as dark, you know, as you can imagine. But um, even like very scary books he's written, you know, most of the characters survive. You know, evil is defeated, at least provisionally, you know, at the ending. And I think it reflects his attitude. Um, and I think the mist to me, 
that ending doesn't quite work because they're so faithful to the tone of the story up to that point. And then they introduce an ending, which in some ways is kind of contrary to the way Stephen King operates. Yeah, and I agree with that. You know, it it makes me think of, uh, I'm thinking of Salem's Lot, you know, when, uh, you know, things were pretty dire in Salem's Lot in the ending, which actually is the beginning, (laughs) Um, you know, because they're on the run, you know, they're, they're, they're on the run and the, the vampires are out there somewhere and they know someday they're going to have to uh, confront that. So there is this, this horror there. Um, there is something. Yeah, I agree. He, he often doesn't want to go that to that really, really bleak ending. There's a short story. This reminded me of this ambiguous ending anyways. And I forget the name of it, but it was in, um, it's either in everything's eventual or one pass, uh, or, the other one, uh, the one you, the one after that, one of the short story collections, uh, where there's a guy who just wants to kill himself. So he checks into a, a, a motel and he, you know, he's decided to kill himself. He's got a family and everything, but he's a traveling salesperson. But his hobby was collecting graffiti from all the, 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 the bathroom stalls of like truck stops along the way. <laughs> and he wrote them all down and, but when he wanted to kill himself, he realized like someone's going to find this and think I'm a crazy guy. I'm this crazy guy who has all these weird mottos and stuff in my notebook. So he's figured, how can I get rid of this? I can't flush it. I can't hide it because eventually the maid will find it. So he think, where? How can I get rid of this? Maybe I should throw it into because it's winter. Throw it out and won't be found till spring. But then it'll still be found. And then it's left ambiguous whether he kills himself. Like maybe. His notebook saves this guy's life, but it's ambiguous because, you know, I, I think I agree. He always, almost always has this optimistic, happy ending. Well, well he's, he's, now, he's still alive. He hasn't killed himself yet. The author. Yeah, I mean. The thing is, the concept. Yeah, this um, is a real, real phenomenon. When they, when they talk about in the United States, they talk about all the gun deaths, right? Oh, we got all these bad gun deaths in Canada just banned. Uh, uh, what they call assault style rifles, right? Whatever that means. It's just a list of rifles that they're uh, banning. Um, they talk about the gun deaths, but they sort of avoid breaking it down. Most of those gun deaths are actually suicides, right? Most of them. And the reason you can kill yourself so easily is if you have got a gun in your house and you get real low, you can go and do it. It's not like I got to go find a bridge and uh, I got to mm. climb up on there and, yeah, and people are going to ask. It's it's way easier and uh, it's like if you have drugs in your house, you know, you keep heroin in your house. It's a lot easier to get back addicted to it, I think. And mm-hmm. and and we have these states where we change and we are maybe not as faithful to our wives as we should be. And maybe the kids failing out of high school. Right. And you just oh, mm-hmm. things will look better in the morning, son, he says. And I, uh, I love the way he talks to his kid in the book. Right. He says I was as honest as I could be. <laughs> yeah. And I remember that stuff sticking out when I was uh, younger reading that, too. That's because. The parents are not wiser uh, beings than the kids. They just have more experience. Right? Uh, they've had, they've seen new, uh, you know, one of the people in the store says, things will look better in the morning, right? And he says, will they, Dad? No, I don't know, son. <laughs> Is Mommy okay? I don't know, son. <laughs> uh-huh. But here, have a hug. Uh, 
we all have these sort of despair. <laughs> so looking at it as a psychological story rather than as a, you know, a confection, which is what I think of like a show like Stranger Things is they they read the Stephen King stuff. Or isn't there a new show that's it's like called after Stephen King's town or something like Castle Rock or something. Castle like. Rock, Castle yeah. Rock, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. So th- th- these are shows that are exploiting Stephen King's works, uh, adapting Stephen King's works or appreciating Stephen King's works. They're not Stephen King. And so when he's doing it, he's telling us the real stuff that's going on in his mind and writing it down on paper. Uh, these guys are saying, wasn't that part cool? And they're noticing mm-hmm. it. And then they're sort of reconstructing it so that it, it has the ooh, it has the shining music, and it has the carpet from the shining, and it has a kid, uh, you know, like in Stand by Me, and oh, it's got that thing from ET. That's also eighties, right? Like, okay, yeah. so yeah, I mean, all of that work to me, the way the Stephen King stuff does, because it's straight from his unconscious. Yeah, no, I think to me that's what sets yeah. him apart from almost every other popular novelist. You know, like we talked about how he does refer to other authors, and he'll often like call them out in the text. You know, he'll mm-hmm. he'll you know, mention that this looks like a Bosch painting or like a Lovecraft creature, but it's so personal. You know, I, I can't think of any other novelist with his degree of success who has mined his personal life and his inner life so obsessing. Being an author, I can't think of one either. Uh, there's very few that are like that. It, it, it's very instinctual, and I think that's why he's so appreciated. Is, is he's not made, he's not constructing it like using a. Uh, a plot generator and cranking it out, right? It's, uh, oh, people are into Wendigos this week. Okay, let's make a Wendigo book. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's yeah. more like I had this weird experience where a car really obsessed me for a while. And then uh, I <laughs> couldn't combine, stop thinking. Yeah, yeah. go for it. And you combine that with this like almost like superhuman level of attention to detail. And, you know, he's so observant and he just, you know, collects these details that are astonishing, not just about like, his everyday life, but even his childhood, you know, he remembers his childhood and, you know, so well, better than I remember mine. About in this, right? A kid crying in the sandlot. Mm-hmm. I've not read all the Stephen King stuff, but doesn't he have a story called The Sandlot? Pretty sure he does. It's a baseball movie. Oh, yeah, um, you know what? Maybe you're, but it's, in, in any case, it's, it's of that era, right? Like mm-hmm. Stephen King is, he is a boomer, right? <laughs> I think he is. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, these are these are the uh, and uh, even the the little tiny details like uh, how how the boathouse, right? All those details about the boathouse, how the kid has this fawning affection for the boathouse because his dad has it, yeah. right? Yeah, and uh, it's wonderfully modeled. Well, there's this uh, there's a line where you know he talks about Mrs. Carmody smoking a Parliament cigarette and a one step at a time filter, and I was right. like. Right, and I was like, "What is that?" You know, I had to look yeah. it up, and I'm like, "That's everything." A good product, right? Like Pepsi and uh, the Purina. <laughs> Doc, yeah, I, mentioned, it, I mentioned like Updike earlier, you know, and kind of the same thing where you have these novels that are these documents, and they really do capture all this information, right, about what it was like to be alive and to be like a middle class American in 1980, you know, that you can't find anywhere else. Yeah, yeah they're not meant to be period yeah. pieces, but they turn out to be. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they're reflecting. It's really good, like in his more recent writing, to be very contemporary now. Like he's not stuck in the in the fifties and sixties. He's still right? making those and observations. Right, right, right. But there are yeah. novelists who write as if it is still the 
especially some science yeah. fiction novels, or this is still, still the 60s, 70s, or 80s, and it's like, this is not how the world is now. What are you thinking? Right. Right. But, like, I want to talk about Castle Rock a little bit, the, the TV series. Because you do. kind of, Jesse, you seem to sort of throw that in the same group. I haven't as seen it. Stranger but... Things, in a way. And I, as someone who watched it, I, I think that does a better job of, of getting King, even though it doesn't draw any plot. Like I think there's nothing in either of the two seasons of Castle Rock that are drawn from King's novels directly, plot-wise. Um, maybe a few things, um, but it gets King. It, it like understands what he's after in the same way I think Darabont does, and mm. and and a way Stranger Things maybe doesn't. And I think one one thing that's cool about uh, Castle Rock is it takes characters. Uh, some, especially in season two, it takes characters directly from its novels. And that's really where a lot of his strength is in developing these characters who are really, really memorable. Yeah. Right. I think I've never read a novel list like King where like throughout my life, I've had a relationship with these, with the characters. Yeah, for a no, very long. exactly. And well, yeah. yeah, I mean, my favorite anyway, uh, King novel uh, is, is probably it, uh, which is one of my favorite novels of all time. Yeah. And um, I read that yeah. book when I was 12. You know, when I was the age of those characters um, and I thought it was the most accurate depiction I'd ever seen of 12 year olds, of, of like mm. the inner life of a of a yeah. preteen. And then I went back and read it again when I turned 38 uh, or whatever the ages of the adult characters. I'm like, this is it's still accurate. You know, it, it captures mm-hmm. what it's like to be, you know, uh, the same person at different life stages in a way that mm-hmm. I've never seen. And even like, you know, literary fiction. I think that's why when we were saying before about, um, you know, the him being unfaithful to his wife and stuff, the reason I like that and his stories is because people do that and there isn't always consequences for it. And he, mm-hmm. he doesn't get punished for that. And, um, <laughs> which is different to especially American movies, like every transgression is punished yep. and you know, what's going to happen. And I think that's why this movie really worked for me because they took that out. So he didn't, cheat on his wife which made yeah. the ending uh, less predictable like i didn't see it coming that he was going to get punished so hard for <laughs> an act of mercy whereas if they'd had him cheat we would have known like because it's a movie like, yeah, the like, late, oh, okay. mrs carmody would have been right yes. yeah well so I, mean, I think they, I, they're right I've always liked about you know these books is that they do treat sex in this very matter-of-fact way um yeah. but i think it comes out of the again i keep talking about like this period in the 70s where it's not just books but also movies you know there's this like brief moment where you had movies for adults that talk about adultery and sort of adult relationships and big movies that um kind of went away in the 80s the but big uh, <laughs> you know yeah and, and you look at you know um these uh you know, books about suburban adultery that you see a ton of them, you know, come out during this period. And it's like a lot of Stephen King novels are like that book for the first few chapters. And then it turns into this, you know, into like a like a supernatural horror novel. But it's mm-hmm. built on this foundation of, you know, very closely observed um, sort of modernist, uh, you know, American fiction. If Stephen King wasn't writing these things, like I'd be worried more of worried for his kids and family because it, I met, I picture him, right? Let's go on vacation. He says to his family and they go up to the house and he has these dark thoughts on the road. Yeah. <laughs> well, instead of saying, I'm going to write this down when I get there. <laughs> I mean, I, I always say, you know, so I love the shining, both, both the book and the movie, the shining. And, um, you know, they are the best depictions of being a writer I've ever seen. They're very accurate. <laughs> the way it feels, 
feels to be a writer trying to, to like work on something, you know, um, with your family there and like other other issues impinging on your life. You know, it, it's, it's, it's scary to say it, but it, it gets it. It gets it better than any other book I read. That's why you need that. Axe. that if you just have a different if you just change stuff up that you can finish the book. I, that's one thing that always struck me personally about The Shining. Mm-hmm. This commitment he had, Jack, right? Like, if I can just have a new environment, I can finish the book. Well, because right? I, I, I feel that way myself sometimes, you know? Yeah. Like, well, there's just, a great line of the movie. I don't know if it's in the novel offhand where he says, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm outlining a new writing project and, and, you know, like four months of peace and quiet is just what I need, you know? And, and that feels to me, yeah. I think every writer can relate to, to that feeling. Um, and then to the feeling of like someone interrupting you while you're in the middle of, of typing, um, it's like, you know, he has this great rant about how, you know, if you hear me typing, if you don't hear me typing, you know, I'm working. Please don't interrupt me. <laughs> in the movie. Because in the book, in the movie. he actually becomes a better writer when he's there because he gets a new project. It's not in the movie at yeah, all. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a great book. Yeah. He, he's yeah. like, I should really be researching the history of this this hotel yeah right <laughs> of course that's being the ghosts kind of want him to do that because the <laughs> the, the, the history is all about the ghosts right <laughs> but you know that's that i thought was kind of missed in the movie version like, well in the movie it's a famous yeah. criticism but from the very first scene you see jack nicholson you know this jack Norrance torrance is absolutely crazy <laughs> and this is why his entire manuscript is just the same phrase over and over again. <laughs> uh, whereas in the book, he, there is a descent into madness of how the hotel sort of draws him into its history, but also the book he's writing. Um, he starts to uh, identify with different characters and who was the villain becomes the hero in his mind. And this is sort of, you see the sort of moral corruption that comes <laughs> through and, I mean, Kubik's film is great, but it's a huge ball drop to have that kind of Jack Nicholson in the interview going just, you know, he looks insane before he's even got to the hotel. And that <laughs> that takes so much out, out of the actual the story. And Kubik was far too going, well, are the ghost real or not? And it's kind of, yes, it's a novel. They're allowed to exist in novels. Just get on with it. Show us some Stanley, you know. <laughs> so... Uh, when I was reading, I think, the New York Times review of Skeleton Crew. Um, it, obviously, it was in Dark Forces before that, but um, the review said, uh, you know, didn't give any spoilers away or anything like that on The Mist, but it said uh, uh, cinematic writing was the takeaway line. And obviously, you know, Stephen King is always being adapted to film. He always has been, like, basically since the word go, I guess. Um, but even like in the last few years, it's like, is there a th- project that he's produced uh, a, a story, a novella, a novelette, a novel that hasn't been adapted at least once. I mean, wow, it's crazy, right? How, but like, word just came down. Revival is going to be adapted. So I'm super excited about that. Oh, but the thing is, is, best, is most re- best recent novel. Like, in it, the like he's a good writer. He's super cinematic. I see that, but um, it's is it because his writing's so cinematic that all these 
filmmakers, and obviously he's got the name now too, so you just attach the name, and it's a green light, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you, you can't underestimate that effect. Like the King name is still huge. I mean, it's it's, it's been huge since the end. Yeah, there's I so mean, many readers, you're going to get an audience. I get I get that, but he's also, but he's so good at not just cinematic writing, but um, pacing and people. Yeah, like his stories, yeah. like they just took along at just the perfect pace, I think. Like we're, especially in this short story we just read, like I don't know if you noticed, like mm. the the first couple, like two hours is kind of slow and it's really nice. It and you're like in it, And then it just picks up so fast, like so much happens in the last hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, um, uh, I, I noted the audio drama skips the whole two first chapters, right? It's all about the grocery store and... And then the escape oh, from the and, 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 so, and so is the video game. There's a, there's a, oh yeah, there's the 1984 game. Yeah, it, <laughs> you play that? It, it, it starts off in the grocery store, so yeah, it's, it's a skip adventure. Wow. Yeah, see, to me that's a mistake. I, I uh, you know, to I, me it does not work nearly as well if you start in the grocery store. Yeah, I totally. Yeah, agree. you definitely need that build up. I mean, mm-hmm. it works. I mean, I mean that that establishes the the, the, the character relationship between father and son, father and neighbor. Yeah, if you just drop in the grocery store, you miss all miss all that foundation, and it doesn't stand up. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will still still say that the audio drama is very much an excellent artifact, and we, we, today Scott and I are, I think well aware that there are many, 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 many audio dramas available being produced and stuff. But back then in the eighties, it was as dry as hell. And that, that actually kicked off a, like there's a guy named Fred Greenhalge who has a radio drama revival podcast that, you know, he spun off into doing projects for audible, you know, basically full cast productions. And it's in this style where you get a microphone and a bunch of actors and you go to a location and you start recording rather than you're all in a studio. And so it may not seem like the most amazing thing today, but 1984, that thing was broadcast on the radio and then released on LP. And it's been in print, not just because it's Stephen King, but because it's so innovative and a good adaptation, despite not starting where the book starts. So um, most people are probably going to give the movie a watch and maybe read the book. Don't short shift the audio drama because it, for what it is, it is excellent. Yeah. And again, it does skip the beginning, but it does, it, it does a good job with what it's doing. And if you are wearing headphones, which I've done in the past to hear it, um, it does give you that 3D effect so you can see where things are happening without actually seeing it. And doing like that, it would, all that without a narrator, amazing. I feel like it would be fun as well, like after you've already read the story, so you already have that build up in the, the full story I, in your I mind. Had, I hadn't read the story when I first heard oh, it. Oh, wow. It was, and that was before the audio uh, the movie. And I'm like, this is scary. This is really cool. scary. Yeah. And it it is. It's like... You're in that grocery store with those people. You can't see inside anybody's heads. Um, you don't know who the good guy is because the camera's focused on him. All you can hear are the words, the pe- what people are screaming. Uh, you know, and yeah, I saw one criticism saying, um, "There's something in the mist. It looks like this, and it has long legs." With like that, uh, there are a couple of lines where we get a little bit of description that maybe somebody wouldn't give you naturally. Uh, but honestly, it's very effective, I think. So, 
check it out, Marissa. I think you'll dig it. You, mm, I, I will. I, I sent it to my friend Misa, and she said, "Is this scary?" Because <laughs> she started listening to it. I can't. I can't listen to it. It's this scary. I listened to it <laughs> last night, and I listened to it this morning. It's definitely scary. It's nightmare yeah, like fuel. <laughs> Especially if you've got your eyes closed. It's like you're in that grocery store with the lights out. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's 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 worse because in a film, you know, if, if things are getting gruesome, which they do in the movie, all those eggs inside that guy. I mean, it's almost too much for me. Right. That, oh, body I that was great. Higher. Oh, yeah. it's so spooky. Um, those are some great I can look uh, I don't think they were the CG in the movie is not that notable, but that yeah. that's, that was great. Well, you know, once those eggs pop, all, all those spiders crawling out and yeah. oh, oh, horrible! <laughs> <laughs> A little bit of aliens in there too, you know, uh, yeah. like uh, with the people hanging and being impregnated or whatever, like. He's he's uh, I guess that's that's more that's not in the story, is it? With the eggs? No. 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 I mean, there's spiders, but I don't think they and they're killing people, but I don't think yeah, we're the seeing eggs aren't in the book. I don't think. Yeah, they're uh, not hatching out. Yeah, but the, sp- the spiders are on our side. They should be because they're after the insects, and the insects are being eaten by the birds. Yeah, we don't fit nice into this ecosystem. It is, yeah, it's a nice alien ecology yeah. that we don't we're not a part of. We're incidental. What is their? What is their? But uh, on the base level, what is their vegetation? Right? We never see that, <laughs> um, and maybe that's why we're ultimately safe: is the vegetation doesn't spill in, <laughs> right? Uh, like uh, the way it does in War of the Worlds, say, uh, or, or they, they bring or, their own. Or I'm also thinking head. like triffids from you know the the triffids. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah. but, but but I mean, we have we have these bird dinosaur things. Maybe some seeds will get spilled, and then you can have some. Alien plants grow up. There's there's a nice follow up story Stephen King never thought of. He's like, now what what do these plants do, and what is how do we deal with that? That's not a Stephen King story because he he isn't about the ecology no, exactly. He's about the psychology, right? Right. But but maybe they're psychedelic, and maybe they can mentally influence. <laughs> they just people. have to be psychic. Yes, yeah, so psychic psychic plants. <laughs> See, I'm writing stuff for King right here and now. <laughs> don't worry he's writing something for him right now <laughs> that's how he can produce so much it's crazy well I think you're close to done right yep any of you read any uh, you read from a Buick 8 no I have not I have yes yes yeah mm. yeah that's, yeah that's a fun book that's interesting <laughs> I think that's written after kind of he was finishing up Dark Tower so it's more mm. directly that so that's that's clearly a thinny and like a, a portal between worlds that's in a car but that again with it's cars a smaller, it's a longer book but it's smaller because it's just about this police station that finds this weird car that doesn't quite work like doesn't like the architecture of the car is all wrong um but every once in a while it spits out some weird monster like this it that's says thomas jane uh, the, that's the actor playing the main character and this is uh, in december 2019 announced he was producing a buick yeah well uh, that's interesting because uh, i think most people don't like think too much of that that book i liked it but 
It's it's because it's so small. Yeah, name it's, it's literally just F4 a, a police station has this car that spits out a monster every few years. <laughs> it's really but fun. It's, one it's of the one of the monsters is a D and D one as well. <laughs> the Demogorgon. Yeah. No, but it's, it's kind of like the Green Mile in that way, where you got this small group of coworkers mm. who kind of have a secret, and like the supernatural interferes with their very mundane and, and rather banal world, and. That's what I kind of if, like about that. If book. Stephen King had been born uh, Stephina King, <laughs> or whatever, um, I think he, his books, right? He, he his books would be slightly different. Like the fact that he's obsessed with cars, like that's a guy thing, right? I mean, there are there are women who like cars and they Back get a new it car. Was a guy thing, yeah. yeah. No, but like especially like the you know facts about the cars and the the. Yeah. Like it's just more of a guy thing. There are women who are into it. It's just as a percentage, they're not. And so, sure. being being that he's a dude, um, it's just like these old cars from the fifties. He's just very into them. As you know, one of my friends, he he's like he he, he sees a picture of a nineteen seventies AMC AMX. Which is like a very terrible car. You really don't want to have it. It's impossible to get parts for. It's gas guzzler, all sorts of problems. But it looks so cool. He wants to have one, right? Um, because when he was a kid, that was the ultimate car. You know, you could drive around with a little car. And so the psychology here is like it would be different if he was a woman. If he had a female, um, uh, I don't know, brain, it would be different. And and yet, I still think there would be obsessions. I just wonder what those obsessions would be, right? It's also a boomer thing, I think, Jesse. Like, even, sure. I don't care about. I'm when was I born? Seventy seven. I maybe it's just because who I am, but I don't have this obsession about cars. That I do, and and I yet I also it. don't. Right? Yeah, I, I I'm really into cars. Who but knows? It could be it, obsession with. Duck breeds. Yeah, or, or, or like, um, like doilies. I don't know anything about doilies, but I know my grandma was really oh, into. You went straight to doilies. I go all the I don't get it. Like, what's with the doilies, ladies? I mean, not many women care about doilies. They did <laughs> though. Very... They did, right? Because it's not like you go to the doily store and buy some. You go and make. You get the stuff and you make them, and then you put them underneath things. And oh, I got a new plant. Got to make a doily. <laughs> if it was, uh, yeah, nowadays well, it'd probably be a, uh, I don't know, video games. Yeah, I, I think video games have really changed people's brains um, because now you don't spend money on your clothes; you spend money on your game clothes. Yeah. So weird. We are going to grow up with a very different set of people. I think their obsessions are going to be different. Well, that's always well, I, true. I could see King writing a novel about a uh, uh, massive multiplayer role-playing game someday. Because <laughs> <laughs> he does kind of like that book sell, and there's that reason one elevation. That has a bunch of modern stuff in it. Mm. He, he tends to be fairly contemporary, I think, in his... Is cell is cell really about cells though? Because I saw the movie, and I was thinking, uh, it's not really. Well, he that. tries to incorporate contemporary technology into his stories. Yeah, yeah. Oh. the feel and and the 
the pop culture references and the memes of the time. You know, <laughs> oh, you know, that reminds me. One thing I wanted to say about the movie The Mist, which uh, I, I wanted to mention, is that um, I saw it probably in like 07, 08 when it came out. And um, it was the first time I'd ever seen a cell phone in a movie used as a flashlight. Uh, ah. I, I remember thinking, oh, that's interesting. And uh, yeah. And, and now, now nobody it. has flashlights. Yeah. <laughs> They're all using their cells all mm-hmm. the time. Oh, that's another thing about the story in general, though, right? Like, you can't really write the story now because everyone would just be right. <laughs> contacting everyone on their phones. And yeah, yeah. Well, no, you'd have a thing in now where the mist knocked out the signal. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. That lead right away out that's, of it. That's now. all you can that's do. That's like the classic. Yeah. yeah well, it, like, it did ro- knock out the radio, so it, yeah. It, yeah, it, but, it would have been. But would there be such an such a focus on the radio now in this day and age? For younger people, no. but probably not. It's like they don't care. That the internet's out. The internet. Yeah. What can the, we do? It's internet, <laughs> not, not that radio station X is out, or I can't get to my serious X out. That's. The, it seems to be like what every horror movie and stuff has to do now, right? Like, oh no, the signals are gone. <laughs> my favorite scene in the whole book, um, and it's it's in the movie too, is when he says to his kid, "I'm gonna go next door to the to the drugstore." And I'm going to get you a Spider-Man. And like the kid, I can feel the kid getting like, oh, that'll be good. Yeah, right. But the best part is when he's in there. Um, first thing he does is he goes over to sees all the paperbacks spilled all over the ground. And then he finds a Spider-Man and a Hulk. So when I'm thinking when he gets back to that kid, the kid's going to be super happy because not only did he get a Spider-Man, he's going to get an incredible Hulk, too. Oh, boy. So happy. I mean, <laughs> it's ridiculous that 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 would satisfy you back then <laughs> when you're in that horrible situation. But I've had to sit on the dock for, uh, I don't know, three hours waiting for somebody to come back on a boat. And if I have a, a couple of comic books, I'll be happy as a clam. You know, it's fine. <laughs> so um, reading uh, Stephen King, I think, is like that for a lot of folks. It, it's like a... Uh, a great uh, couple of issues of Marvel from 1980. Yeah, you're just totally absorbed. You're gone. Right? Yep. You give, give the kid a pop, something to drink, and a, a little bit of shade. Uh, get, give him a Pepsi, something for the dentist to work on later. <laughs> <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.